Hey everyone, welcome to the Grabs Podcast, where we bring the stories of real-life rescues on the fire ground to you firsthand from those involved. I'm your host today, Grant Schwalbe, and today with me I've got Brian Peterson. Uh, he's retired, and he's out of Hillsborough County Fire, and at the time he was working as a captain on Truck 11. If you've taken one of my classes, we've talked about this call, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. So welcome, Brian. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? Good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the department that you worked for at the time? Yeah, my, I'm Brian Peterson. Um, I'm retired now from Hillsborough County Fire Rescue, retired in 2016. I joined that department in 1985, worked my way up through the ranks and um, spent a better part of my career in their special operations division uh, assigned to their technical or heavy rescue. Um, got into fire service in 1979, just before my 19th birthday. Um, and... Ah, that's, that's about it. What uh, talk, Let's talk about the search culture in Hillsborough, Hillsborough um, when you were working there. Well, it, it went through a bunch of shifts. Um, primarily, it was a pretty um, word they like to use, an aggressive search culture. We, we really prided ourselves on getting in and finding people if they were in there. And uh, I thought that was how all departments were. Um, and then sort of in the mid 2000s, there was a, there was a, and I think it was the fire service wide, there was a shift to um, re- reading the building and deciding if the, if the risk was worth the value, you know, uh, if, if, if the risk was worth it to go in there and make a search. Um, and so you started to see some uh, stations and some um, teams uh, not getting in there as quickly as I thought that they probably should. Um, the search culture with Hillsborough County was a pretty good one. I, th- I think we did fairly well. We had, we had quite a few fines. Uh, obviously there were, there were some fatalities as well, but um, I think it was a pretty good search culture in the department. What do you guys get on a regular alarm for residential fire there? At the time of my retirement, we would get um, three engines, a truck, uh, a rescue and a chief. And then that was changed to four engines, a truck, a rescue, rescue being an ambulance and a chief. And then um, almost immediately, uh, a second, if, especially if anything was found, the second rescue would show up or be put on the alarm. Uh, or if the, if the uh, officer on the scene decided to use the rescue on the initial alarm for some on-scene operations, a second rescue was automatically dispatched to take their place. So rescues are regional. So what was a rescue for you guys up there? Is that that rescue is, is a... Is a uh, an ambulance, um, Freightliner chassis it comes with two two paramedics. Uh, Hillsborough was it was in the uh, fire medic um, mode at that time, so just about everybody on those rescue cars was a firefighter and a paramedic. Um, there were a few that were what we called standalone medics. Um, they they were not state certified firefighters, but they were easily identifiable. And uh, what were what did the trucks do? Were they were they specialty truck units that only yeah we, like we tried to function or? as trucks? Um, you know, uh, pull up, um, secure the utilities, ventilation if needed, search. Um, we went through a lot of growth and and change over the years. 
when I first got on, some of the trucks only had two guys assigned to them. Then we went to three, then we went to four, then we went to four on paper, but really was more, more than often than not just three. And to be honest with you, I can't remember what I had that on that night. I'm, I know I had at least three, it could have been four, but I can't remember if I had four with me that night. Um, our heavy rescue had four on it that night. Um, we rolled up uh, at the same time with two engines, a heavy rescue, a truck, a chief, and an ambulance all pulled on the scene at the same time. So we had quite, it was right on the boundaries of two different districts. So we, we had a lot of people show up at the exact same time. For your normal fire, how are you guys functioning? Do you have pre-arrival assignments or yes. is it incident command driven or? It's, um, we have, our SOP had uh, pre-arrival assignments based on position on the, on the apparatus. And then um, obviously that was subject to change by whoever uh, rolled up on scene, assumed, set up and assumed the command uh, structure. And if he needed something else done, you know, he would broadcast that on the radio. But uh, for the most part, it was driven by what was in the SOPs for your position on that particular piece of apparatus. All right. And then uh, the, last, the last question uh, that I'm kind of curious about before we jump into the, to the, uh, the grab, how did you run your crew when you were assigned search? Uh, were you splitting it? Were you doing an oriented? Um, were you doing a split search? What tools were you taking? Kind of walk me through your conversation and how, how you worked your crew. So it, it kind of depended on whether I had three or four. Um, if, uh, if I had, and, and whether we were going to be putting the stick in the air or not. So um, our standard complement of tools, we had thermal imagers, handheld thermal imagers. Um, obviously, the irons guy would carry irons and things like that. You carry your, your regular search tools. Um, if we were going to go into a search and I had all four, two of us would go right, two of us would go left, and we would meet somewhere in the middle um, and making sure that we got as much as we've done. Obviously, focusing on the uh, part of the structure where the occupants were most threatened because uh, we felt like we needed to get in there first and, and clear that area and then work on the other side of stuff. Um, usually myself would take care of the utilities and evaluate the ventilation needs. Um, that's one thing that uh, without um, making anybody look bad, our department tended to look at ventilation secondarily. We had other things that we did primarily. Sec uh, ventilation was usually handled as sort of like step two, or you know, once we got these couple of things accomplished, then we would get ventilation handled. Um, but uh, if we had three people, we pretty much always went um, based on the side of the uh, structure that was where the most threatened occupants would have been. Um, Usually, if there was three of us, two of us would be searching and we would detail one of the truck company guys to go in with the nozzle crew to help open up stuff for those guys. Cool. So let's jump in. We're going to go back to September 15th, 2011. It was shortly after midnight. You guys responded to 101 Foxwood Drive and then kind of talk me through this call. So the call came in. Um, most of the guys on all the truck, all the pieces of equipment out there were, had, had worked in Brandon for a while. So we, we knew that this was a call in a residential neighborhood. We also knew that it was right on the boundary, literally on the boundary line between uh, uh, the station 
on the east side of Brandon and a station on the west side of Brandon. So we sort of didn't know who was going to get there first, but you know, we knew where we were headed. Um, we dispatched that it got dispatched as a full alarm. So um, I want to say that's this particular uh, call, and I can back that up with documentation if, if need to afterwards. Was four engines, a ladder truck, the heavy rescue unit out of Station Eleven. I want to say there was one ambulance for sure and a chief, um, and two engines, a ladder truck, the heavy rescue, a rest uh, ambulance, and a chief all showed up at the exact same time um, in this neighborhood with uh, heavy fire showing from the um, C D corner, more on the D corner uh, than the C corner, but on the CD corner. Um, there was a sheriff's deputy already there. Um, we were met in the street as we got off the trucks and the apparatus. We were met in the street by two, a male and a female. Um, I won't say elderly, but they were older, uh, um, who told us, everybody is out of the house. Please don't, none of y'all get hurt. You know, just, we're all out of the house. Just be careful. That's literally what they told us. Just be careful. Don't any of y'all get hurt. Um, we decided to go ahead and start our um, operations. Uh, engine 33, which was from the west side of Brandon, was the nozzle crew, and they were making entry in through the front door. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the heavy rescue crew was doing, but I think they were taking care of utilities. Um, I split my crew up to do search and do a left hand in the front door and a right hand in the front door. Um, Part of the crew went with the uh, nozzle crew as they made their entry to the right. Um, I made a quick search to the left. There wasn't much there. So I found myself probably within a minute of making entry, meeting up with engine 33's nozzle crew in the uh, right rear corner of the building um, as they were fighting fire and, and, and the captain was pushing into a bedroom, uh, probably, 10 seconds after that, he came out, met me in the hallway, and the heat conditions were actually not too bad because we were kind of in a low crouch. But um, he met me in the hallway with the first um, grab and uh, started heading out. I called that on radio that uh, Engine 33 crew coming out with a victim. Um, we had a little bit of difficulty getting that message through because we were using those Bluetooth microphone things they just didn't work very well but they finally got the message and at the same time myself and another firefighter uh, went into that bedroom to complete the search and as, literally as soon as we walked in we were we were confronted with two of those little red plastic race car beds so that kind of clued me in that there's probably two children in there um, searched the left hand bed didn't find anything searched the right hand bed and as soon as I put my hand down found the second victim um, cleared the uh, condensation away and the debris away from the outside of my mask just to, you know, see what I had put my hands on, but I knew what I had put my hands on. Picked it up, turned around. Um, the firefighter that was in the room with me was between me and the door, so I handed that firefighter the, the victim, who he then turned around and went out, called that one that the victim was coming out or that the crew was coming out with a second victim. And then uh, I actually followed him out, and the nozzle crew that was involved uh, finished making the quick knockdown fire and they had also um the heavy rescue crew by that time had come in 
met us in that little vestibule between the two bedrooms and the bathroom and they had searched the remainder of the house. We got a primary secondary search was complete. Um, by the time I made it outside, um, the driver engineers on the apparatus that were there uh, were already doing uh, ALS on the two victims. And the, what I can remember the most was the um, look of the shock on those, the, what I later found out was to be the grandparents because they were completely 100% unaware that those two children were in the house. But let me quantify that by saying it wasn't unusual for those children to be in the house, but they were usually informed that the, the mother of the children would, would sometimes, if she was working a late shift or had other things to do, would, would bring the children to the grandparents' house. They had their own bedroom. As a matter of fact, the mother even had her home bedroom. And she would let them know, hey, the boy, I'm going to leave the boys and then, you know, and go do what she was going to do. Well, that particular night, she, they were already in bed, the grandparents, and she didn't wake them up and let them know. She gave the boys their bath, put them to bed, and then she left to do whatever she was doing. And so they never even knew that the children were in the house, which is why they told us in the street that there was nobody else in the house. It was just them. So, Crazy story. What was the... What, what was visibility like in, inside when you guys got to that room? When we got to that room, um, I did, when, I, when I put my hand on the, the victim that I found, I had, I had to bend over and I was probably within eight inches before I even could make out a silhouette. So it was, it was that particular room was uh, the side of the house where the fire had started. It had started in the bedroom right next to that. I don't know if you're familiar with those old ranch style layouts where you come out of the living room and you're, you're in like a little hallway and there's a bathroom in the middle and then to the left and to the right are two bedrooms. That's was sort of the setup. You're in like a little small hallway, bedrooms, uh, bathrooms right in the middle and then a, a bedroom to the left and to the right. They were in the bedroom to the left. Fire had started in the bedroom to the right. Um, the fire was contained pretty much to that bedroom and the bathroom between the two bedrooms, but the, the, be the bedroom doors were open um, and the smoke conditions on that side were, were pretty within eight inches, I'd say was the visibility. And given their size, it didn't sound like you guys had any trouble getting them out quickly. No, literally um, scooped them up. They were probably, I'd go 40 pounds, 50 pounds, four-year-olds. So they were, they were quite small. So now let's dive into what, what really sticks with me on this call. You know, how many times we run, run up to an incident and we just take bystanders word for whatever it is. Um, they don't, they didn't give you bad information because uh, they wanted to trip you guys up or anything. Uh, but sometimes we just, this is a perfect example. We just can't always trust the information we get on scene. Uh, there's always time. Um, we can't make up that time if we decide to delay. So what I love about what you guys did was you took that information and you guys still went about your business. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as if you're, um, what that did mentally for you? This had to be a tough call for you guys to go on. Uh, but, yeah. but the yeah. preparedness of your crew and the fact that you didn't take their word for it, how did that play into uh, the eventual you guys getting over this? Well, it, it was something that we had uh, on our particular crew, the ones at 11, we had sort of 
amongst ourselves decided that as long as there were searchable spaces in the building, we were going to search them. It just didn't matter. Um, you know, there were so many cases over the past decade or so where uh, homeless people or people were found that weren't expected to be there. And we had just made a decision that if there were searchable spaces that we could get into, we were going to search them. Um, and there were a few times where we searched and didn't find anything. But this particular time we searched in an area that, like I said in the beginning, probably three quarters of this house was searchable. Um, the only area that was not searchable was the fire room. So that, that left, you know, a, a three bedroom, two bath house with a two car garage, kitchen, living room, family room. All of those spaces were searchable. So um, it was just sort of, I don't want to say autopilot, but it was sort of an automatic reaction for us is, okay, thanks for your information. We're going to go in and, and, and hit all of our benchmarks. We're going to extinguish the fire. We're going to search while we're doing the extinguishment on that side. And we're going to search on this side. We'll meet in the middle and, and clear this structure. And unfortunately, we were we, we we didn't clear the structure. We found somebody, and unfortunately, those those two children didn't survive. But um, I feel like if we hadn't done that and tried to do some sort of other attack, uh, the children may have even been consumed by the fire. Um, it, it was a tough call. We we actually activated the. Um, uh, stress debriefing team that the, the local uh, critical incident stress debriefing team from around here uh, around the Bay Area a couple there was uh, one set of the medics uh, that had to transport um, they were really shook up because I, if I recall right both of them were were new parents so that uh, sort of struck a chord with them um, most of the guys said they didn't need the help but once the people came and started talking, everybody had something to say. And I think just getting it off your chest, um, good, bad, or indifferent, whether you're slapping each other on the back because you did a good job or, or you really have something that's bothering you, I think just being able to open up and say what you need to say helps. So I get the question, I get this question asked me a lot. You arrive on scene and you're told everybody's out. Do you re ever repeat that over the radio or do you just keep that information to yourself and go about business? You know, I can't remember if we put that on the radio or not, but uh, I usually keep that to myself if, if it's told to me uh, or my crew hears it. Or if I do say something to my crew, I was like, hey, they've just alerted us that there's nobody in this, this house, but we're going to search it anyway. Um, but I can't remember if that was even put on the radio for that call. Like, uh, I have heard it. I have heard it from other, you know, occupants or bystanders advise everybody's out of the structure. Or, or I've even heard dispatch come back and say, as we're rolling in, uh, occupants are advising us that everyone is out of the building. Um, so I know it happens, but I, I just can't recall if it happened. I know we were told that, but I don't know if it was put out on the radio. So obviously you get told somebody's inside and you go inside going for the rescue. You expect to find victims, right? Um, when you go inside, when you're told everybody's out, what was that like mentally? It was a shock. Yeah. It was a shock. Um, I have found people... Uh, my, my career spans from 1979 to 19 or to 2016. So I have found people that I wasn't expecting to find um, in the purest sense. I, I always have in the back of my mind that we may find somebody. And I'm all, I always feel like I'm doing the best search I can possibly do to look for somebody. 
Um, but there were times when we were informed that people were in the structure and we found nobody. And there were times when we were informed that there was nobody in the structure and we found somebody or we found a deceased victim that they didn't know was in the, in the, uh, in the fire. Um, and I'm, I know that happens uh, fire service wide, but this particular call was a shock because not only did we find one victim that we weren't expecting to find, but we found two. And the fact that they were very small children was, um, it was a letdown that we hadn't gotten there even quicker. And, and if I, if I tell you we were on those victims in 30 seconds, I, I couldn't say we were, we were there 10 seconds longer than that. We, we were literally in, into that room within 30 seconds of being there. So that we gave them the best chance they had, but um, unfortunately it wasn't enough. So Brian, as we start to wrap up, you, you had a career that uh, spanned uh, quite a bit of years. You've retired. Uh, you've been on aggressive companies. You've had some experiences. What would you tell the young officer now as it relates to search? Give us a couple tidbits. To... Well, the, the biggest thing is take every piece of information you're given and evaluate it each on its own merits. But the other part is there are searchable spaces in a lot of buildings that are being written off from the street, from a, from a street view, or as you're rolling up, you see the building heavy fire. Uh, a lot of guys will say fully involved when it's only a room and contents and it's terminology, but there are searchable spaces. So you need to make sure that you take that time to look at, look at that building and, and evaluate it. And then if there are searchable spaces, you got to do your best to search those spaces. And what do you do for practice for your, what were you doing for practice in, uh, with your crews? I know searching is a tough skill to practice because we don't have a lot of training facilities that are set up like houses. Yeah. But how do you, how do you do that? Fortunately for us, um, we, over the years, we had a lot of, um, commercial structures that were given to us to use, um, um, some components of the uh, Florida Task Force Three guys had built a, uh, a training simulator, a multi-story inside one of our old shop buildings um, that had a lot of, uh, we could change the layout, we could change the walls, we could change, you know, going from one level to another. We had, we had an ability to do that. Now the department has um, one of those big Connex box training simulators that are starting to become popular multi-story, multi-level, uh, lots of spaces and things like confined space simulators. Um, we had the ability to do a lot of that training, probably starting, well, really, it really kicked off right after 9-11. Uh, the money started flowing and a lot of training opportunities were uh, afforded to us and the ability for the department to build a lot of those simulators. So fortunately for us, we had that ability. That's but awesome. you can also use your station. We had a two-story station, and we did a lot of training in that station over the years. That's good. Putting the work in on the front end always makes things a little easier, even if it doesn't go the way you, you had hoped. Well, Brian, I appreciate you sharing the story. Uh, I, I'm grateful that you shared this so early on, and I was able to include it in a lot of my classes. I'm, and I'm just happy that we can share this firsthand uh, from your point of view for all those that are listening. If you make a grab or assist, alive or deceased, please go to www.firefighterrescuesurvey.com and take that short survey. This information is for us, by us, and updated real time. If you want to share your story uh, of a grab on a podcast, reach out to me, Grant Schwalbe, Justin McWilliams, or Nick Ledeen, 
And uh, we'd love to hear, uh, hear your story because there's something to learn from every incident. Um, until next time, thanks for listening.